I'm jazz artist Brettina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? Is it everything? As a child growing up in Illinois, I was always fascinated by the sky, especially at night. You know, you see the stars glowing in the sky, in the dark sky, you see the moon. And then you learn about the different planets in the solar system, around the universe. Um, you know, it was always something I had an in interest in. At one point, I thought I might want to become a astronomer but I didn't um I know these days it's probably hard especially if you live in a metro area with the light pollution to be able to see the the stars and uh, the solar system at night uh, especially here in the Phoenix area and maybe other metro uh, areas but with the Hubble telescope that was launched some years ago and the pictures that were recorded uh, from that telescope coming back to earth and and now with the James Webb and going even further and more uh, distinct and I would say clearer pictures of the different solar system and reaching out millions and millions of years beyond what uh, uh, we have been able to see before it brings a new light into our knowledge of the universe and our existence in our planets and so this briefing hosted by the wonderful organization of the ethnic media services uh, focuses on the James Webb telescope and the new findings and new pictures that it has brought forth and there's more to come um just a little tidbit <laughs> since we're talking about uh planets did you know and if you listen to my show the, the first hour um you would know but the lady who designed the box that uh neil armstrong was able to bring the moon rocks back in was an African-American woman, a mechanical engineer by the name of YY, and that was her nickname. Her real name was Yvonne uh, Young Clark. Uh, Georgiana Yvonne Young Clark. Fascinating woman. Uh, if you didn't hear that show, the earlier show today, uh, check it out on our podcast. I think you, I think you'll enjoy it. And this is the Alvin Galloway Show.
Dexter Wenzel, Life on Mars. Hello, hello. Good morning. Welcome to Ethnic Media Services Weekly National News Conference. I'm Pilar Marrero, Associate Editor of EMS and today's moderator. Our topic today is exploring outer space, why we do it, and what we learn. The James Webb Telescope recently brought us new images of all stars and constellations filling our minds with wonder. Looking at one of the most impactful of those photographs, one of our panelists wrote, quote, the endless riches of the deep field image jam-packed with stars and galaxy covering a tiny patch of the sky tells the history of the universe, end of quote. The images also filled us with, with questions. Is there other life in the universe? What kind? What do other planets look like? We'll be able to take regular trips to the moon and Mars in the future. All those questions are being explored right now by several countries, including the United States that have been investing in different projects and technologies that help us look beyond our own planet. And we have a bigger question. Can space exploration in all its facets help humanity discover the answer to essential questions, including finding the keys to our survival on Earth. To explore these issues, this week we have, pun intended, a stellar panel. Um, first, Alexandra de Castro, science and technology communicator with Pascal. Then Marcio Melendez, principal astronomical optics scientist uh, from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. And also from the Space Telescope Science Institute, Nicole Arulananta, Gioconi Postdoctoral Fellow. Okay, then. 
let's just move on and go right into our amazing topic of today. And I'm very glad to welcome, um, we welcome Alexandra de Castro. Uh, she joins us from Europe today. She lives in the Netherlands in, in The Hague and she's a science and technology communicator. And she's gonna um, have a presentation for all of us. Alec, bienvenida, welcome. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Pilar and Sandy, for uh, the invitation uh, to your media briefing. And um, I'm very glad to be here sharing with you uh, some of the knowledge uh, on astronomy and space uh, I've accumulated through my career as a science communicator. And um, so, first of all, I would like to introduce um, because the other panelists will introduce uh, um, uh, what is going on in astronomy and the Webb's uh, um, telescope. Um, I will introduce our next adventure on um, human space exploration, that is Artemis. And uh, so this here is a artistic impression from ESA, right? And uh, Artemis program, which is a sister of Apollo, uh, is aiming to take humans uh, back to the moon, okay? And, but this time is not just to prove that we can do it, but to stay. The plan, the long-term plan is to settle actually there to build a lunar base. And, uh, well, it's, it's a dream. This is a dream, um, but many people are working hard to make this dream happen, right? So, um, then we will start with Artemis 1, which is the first mission, of course. And um, uh, this mission is a test mission to make sure that uh, traveling to the moon for humans for many days, 40 days actually, uh, is safe. Okay, so because uh, uh, Apollo missions uh, were very short missions, uh, just go there, stay there, walk a little bit and come back. The longest was 12 days. And uh, actually that was very audacious because um, we didn't know back, back then the risk of space travel for humans, but now we have um, a lot of information from the 20 years um, of experience with the International Space Station, right? So, um, okay. So this is uh, here, uh, this rocket is the um, space launch system, which is now um, uh, in the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, um, uh, ready for launch. And uh, it's going to be very soon now, probably September or October, crossing fingers. And on top of the rocket is the Orion capsule. Here the humans will go. But as I said, Artemis 1 is a test flight. It, it is on crew. Um, no real astronauts will go there. Just they will put some human-sized uh, dummies uh, to investigate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they will put some detectors for radiation so we can uh, know the amount of radiation the astronauts will endure. And then in Artemis 2, which is going to be uh, in about two years, um, they will take four astronauts to the moon. Um, and hopefully, according to the plan, they will take the first women 
astronauts to the moon uh, because they were missing in the Apollo project, right? So, and this is a shorter plan and there is a medium term plan before we go to the, to build the actual base camp because it's, uh, the base camp is a long-term plan. So this medium-term plan involves the construction of a uh, space station orbiting the moon instead of like our international space station that is orbiting the earth. This one, which already has a name, is name is Gateway, will orbit the moon and the astronauts will go there to live and work in this control environment, right? And they will stay there for six to, six months, about three to six months. And um, they will use the Orion uh, modules back and forth from the earth and some vehicles uh, for food and supplies. And of course, um, they will have the lander so they can go actually to the moon and work on the moon and many rob robots uh, which will help with the heavy uh, work, right? So this is a medium per plan. And as I said before, uh, in the end, what we want to know, uh, what we want to achieve is um, to learn a lot about the moon and how we can build a base to stay on the moon, a, a base on the surface, okay? So why are we doing this? So this is what we are here to discuss. Why are we doing this? What are the benefits? for a society of uh, human space exploration and astronomy as well. Um, well, I have this here, uh, this picture uh, I took from Wikipedia. <laughs> this is uh, the Beagle. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, the name of this boat. Uh, this is a Charles Darwin's boat. He explored the, the whole planet. I mean, not the whole planet, but he and Humboldt and many others explored many places on the earth. And they found many uh, new species and uh, clues about um, uh, life on earth in such a way that they, the, uh, Darwin could uh, propose his evolution theory. And um, actually evolution is not just a theory, it's, it's a fact, it's something that is, is happening right now as we speak. So. And, and what is this? Is curiosity, is we're hungry for knowledge. We want to know um, many things. And uh, this is what makes us humans, actually. I, I, would, I would lie if I would say something like we are going to space because uh, we want to do something good for a society. You know, we, 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 are going, we are doing this astronomy and science because we are hungry for knowledge, okay? And um, so going to the moon is not different from what Darwin and um, Humboldt were doing. It's just that our environment got bigger. It's the outer space is now part of our environment and we want to just keep going, okay? Um, so what are the benefits, right? Well, uh, there are many benefits actually, many, many benefits. And um, the first uh, of them I, I want to speak about, this is the one that I like more, is new knowledge. Okay. So 
knowledge is something that you cannot touch or have in your house, but it's something that we can use for our benefit. Um, is um, any kind of discovery uh, can be used for the benefit of communities, uh, the nations, and uh, we just need to understand how to empower ourselves through this knowledge, through, through the new knowledge that we acquire. And uh, for this, I would like to show you two examples, okay, of this wonderful knowledge that we can acquire actually by uh, human exploration. And for that, I, I, I share with you this um, uh, video. This is a video from Apollo 15. And um, it's a crappy video because it's very old. It was done on the moon and with a not the most sophisticated camera because we you could not bring a heavy sophisticated instrument to a, a camera to the, to space but it's uh, let's 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 see the video let's watch the video so okay so uh, this looks like a simple experiment for him but it was done far from the earth it was done on the moon and i think this was a big moment for humanity it was a confirmation of how gravity works in the in other places, not just on Earth. A confirmation of the laws of nature uh, that Galileo, Newton, and others did use for us, and um, everything around us. Transformation, uh, the transportation system, our houses, bridges, uh, buildings, um, the world as we know it use these laws of nature, and uh, this is the kind of knowledge that we can get from exploring space. Um, this kind of video, uh, for me as a physicist, is, gives me goosebumps. It's so beautiful. So, okay. Um, the next one uh, came from uh, astronomy, actually. So um, I like this one very much. Uh, helium, the element, was not found on Earth this element was found in the sun um, through observation. Uh, the English astronomer Norman Lockley uh, discovered this element. And after that, uh, we start looking for helium on Earth and we found it. We found that actually helium was also an element on Earth and it is very useful. So um, we can use for, uh, we use it for, uh, uh, for science, but we can also use it for medicine. And um, here I have some samples and uh, for respiratory uh, therapy, for laparoscopy surgery, and uh, also for protecting the heart from ischemia. And in this paper, I don't know if you can see the paper, but this down here, um, you can see the whole list of uh, uses um, in medicine. And um, well, these are two examples of, of many. Uh, the next um, benefit I want to discuss is, is understanding our place in the universe. Is about the questions that we uh, have been made for a long time about us, about um, what, what is our universe made of and uh, what is the origin of the solar system? Um, are we and our planet unique? Uh, uh, is there life 
elsewhere in the universe. Now, now there, there's a lot of research on life elsewhere on, on, uh, in the solar system, in exoplanets, or, or at least uh, habitability. And, um, and we now uh, have found uh, about uh, 5,000 exoplanets, and many of them are Earth-like. So now we know that we are not that unique. <laughs> And uh, for that, um, I want to show you uh, this picture, this discovery. I think this is one of the discovery that um, that make us uh, think about uh, what 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 is our relationship with the universe, right? Um, uh, Hubble was uh, uh, looking at the uh, to a nebula, and he thought. Um, well, before that, we thought that the whole world was the Milky Way and that Andromeda was just a nebula. And he discovered that it was not a nebula, just a nebula, it was another galaxy, another galaxy like our galaxy. So there's something as big as our galaxy with the same structure out there. So many times, many, many years passed after that. And um, then the Hubble telescope right um took all these beautiful pictures for us uh with where, where all of these points are galaxies actually and then uh, we found out that actually there are thousands of billions of galaxies so uh, our galaxy which is so big is not unique this is the alvin galloway show on krdp and we'll be back Programming on KRDP is supported by Native Health, located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, at the southeast corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. More information is available at 602-279-5262 or online at nativehealthphoenix.org.
Woodsy Lewis, Me Compassion. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. Uh, let me welcome Marcio. Uh, Marcio Melendez, he's a principal astronomical optics scientist of the Space Telescope Science Institute, and he has been working with the mirrors of the Webb Telescope. Uh, welcome, Marcio. Hello, everyone. <clears throat> And as you were um, keeping a good time on the presentations, I realized that I have this challenge of talk about the whole history of the universe, 13.5 billion years in 15 minutes. So let's see how we do it. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll try to, uh, to follow what Alexandra was mentioning on, on why we do some of the things that we have, right? Um, and with the James Webb, right? There are a few things like what can, how can we solve some of the most fundamental questions that we have? Where do we come from? How, how the universe was formed? And how do we get here, right? Is there life outside our solar system or even inside the solar system, right? So for those things, we need to think big, right? And there is nothing bigger than the James Webb. And, and we're going to start with a few um, just a few key facts uh, and don't worry i'm just going to show many of the images and we're going to go through many of the new discoveries that web have made in the past a couple of months a few months but i just want you to spark a little bit of your imagination right thinking about a telescope that is so sensitive that you could see the heat signature of a bumblebee at a distance to the moon right so what would you do with something that is so sensitive that you can do that and that requires such a high level of precision that we are moving each of these mirrors need to be aligned of a one of 10,000, the width of the thickness of a human hair, right? So those are the levels of precision and sensitivity that we need to answer those fundamental questions, right? When we're trying to go back as a time machine, right? We have a golden, almost robotic, telescope in a space that is looking back in time to when the universe was formed. So let's start from the beginning. So the James Webb is a telescope, a space telescope that operates in the infrared. So it has to be very cold. We're gonna talk about in a second in the next slide, why the infrared and why the infrared is so important. <clears throat> then very important is the first segmented telescope in space. The primary mirror you can see uh, in the slide is 6.6 .6 meters across, and is composed by 18 different segments. Why it is important that these have to be the first segmented telescope in space? Remember that for a telescope, if we think a telescope, we need to collect light from the universe, right? So imagine if you have a bucket of water, the bigger the bucket, the more water you will collect, right? So for us, a telescope, the bigger the telescope, the better, because we can collect more water meaning we can collect more light. And if we collect more light, then we can be more sensitive. And if we are more sensitive, we can look farther into the past or at the beginnings of the universe, right? So it is important because if this telescope was so big that it needed to be fold almost like an origami to fit inside the rocket, the rm 5 rocket, right? So it is important to have this first segmented telescope. So it's also was the first time that we have this kind of telescope the future will be like that, bigger telescope that we're gonna be on fall in space, right? 
It also needs to be very cold because of the infrared radiation. So it have this sort of like sun shield that is equivalent if you go to a pharmacy and trying to get a sunscreen with a protection factor of one million, right? So it is so, the, the protection that offers keep the telescope, the size of the telescope as cold or more cold that you can actually freeze oxygen. And in the other side, you can actually boil an egg. So those are the difference in temperatures between the different five layers of, the, of this sun shield that we have. It has four scientists, uh, science instruments. We have NIRCAM, we have NIRSPEC, we have, and I'll talk about this later when we look at the images. We have MIRI and we have NIRIS. And in NIRIS, we have another instrument, which is not regarded as a science instrument, but it's the fine guy instrument. It shares the same location in the telescope and is the, the, the instrument that helps point and keep the position of the telescope, right? So uh, it helps guide the telescope where we're looking at it. And also, contrary to Hubble, that we know Hubble orbits the Earth, and the James Webb is 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth, right? One million miles away from Earth. This is a very special point that is called the L2, or Lagrangian 2 point. That means that for us, in a practical sense, we don't have the option, like in Hubble, to have serving submission, right? As you see at the top of this slide, it was launched in the July on December 25th, and we have already the first images, so we know it's working, right? But if something would have gone wrong during that time, there was no serving submission to fix it, right? This was a mission basically all or nothing, right? Which was the, the big part of, of the James Webb. Now, before we get into looking at the images, and I wanna just to briefly uh, go a little bit on why the infrared, right? Why is important the infrared? I think all the small images that I have here sort of like summarize that, right? We know infra infrared, we all, or pretty much everything emits on the infrared, even, even cold objects, right? And so you see, for instance, not only that everything emits on the infrared, but the infrared, is able with the infrared, you're able to pierce through certain, uh, in, in space through dust. Like some of the pictures you see on the right, you see how you can see the hands of the person behind the paperback, right? The plastic bag. So it allows you also to pierce through different materials. In our case, to pierce through dust, right? So it gives us an unobscure vision of the universe. But also because we know the universe is expanding and every time we're expanding, we are stretching the light that we see, we know that most of the galaxies and the first stars in the galaxies, most of the radiation is emitted in the ultraviolet and the optical. That means that once they reach here on Earth, they have been stretched to fall into the infrared. So in the case of the James Webb, it, it actually worked in both of these uh, important key features, right? That it allows you to pierce through those, right? So it allows you to uncover many things that have been hidden in visible light but also it allows you to see back into the past as light is being stretched through the expansion of the universe, right? This is the cosmological redshift. And I think all those key factors are the ones that are important to understand a little bit about uh, the images that we're gonna see. But now, how we got to this point, right? So at the beginning, and this is my part of the work at the Space Telescope Science Institute, and remember those images of the telescope. I, you can see there the primary mirror composed for the 18 mirrors that we have, uh, 18 segments. So the idea is 
you want to launch a telescope to a space. But when you look at a star, you don't want to see 18 copies of the star. You want all those 18 segments to behave like a single segment, right? So they behave like a single 6.6 .6 meter telescope, right? So we started identifying where are all the segments. That's the image on the upper left. Then we move those segments, we identify those, and then we're trying to stack each of those segments on top of each other. We use very sophisticated mathematical algorithms to find what's the best position of these mirrors. And then finally, we have a beautiful stack a telescope that is only limited by the physics, right? With the telescope that we have, we cannot have a better image than the ones that are, you're gonna see in the next few slides. We are limited by the physics, right? We are limited by the size of the mirrors and the instrument. So uh, this is the best telescope that we could actually uh, be able to commission for science purposes. Now, the first image, right? This is what we do with that telescope, right? With that telescope that can see a bumblebees uh, on the surface of the, of the moon, and that is uh, very precise and sensitive, right? We took the first deep field. This is a quilling of the Hubble deep field. The difference is that this took about 12 hours to collect, where this would have taken weeks on Hubble for something equivalent to this. Now we talk about how big this field is in compared to the things that we can uh, understand. So imagine having a grain of sun, imagine a grain of sun, and you held that as your arm length. That's the tiny patch of the sky that you're looking right now in this image. And you have thousands and thousands of galaxies there. So definitely one of the things that we discovered very early when we were doing the commissioning of the telescope is that virtually every single image that we take with James Webb is a deep field. Every single image has galaxies and thousands and hundreds of galaxies in the background. So it's truly a time machine, right? Looking back into the universe. So in this case, uh, we're looking at a, a cluster of galaxies uh, that is max 0723. That cluster of galaxies is about some 290 million years, uh, uh, 4.6 billion years away from us, that cluster of galaxy. And what is happening is that that cluster of galaxies is almost working as the glasses that I'm wearing, right? These are magnifying the light that is coming from the, from the galaxies that are behind that cluster of galaxies, what we call gravitational lens. So you see all those arcs, you see the arcs of these uh, on, the, on this picture. This is the central part of the global cluster and you see sort of like these arcs. So basically that's light that is passing from behind the objects that are behind that cluster of galaxies that are bending right, because of the gravity and they're reaching us. We can reconstruct that light and now we have a way of measuring and observing these galaxies that are far, far away, way behind this, this cluster. And from this, we know that these are some of the early galaxies in the universe when the universe was only 1 billion years old, right? So uh, for this, we can say that the blue galaxies, this is a, a color image using different filters with a James Webb and each filter represents something. So we can see some of the blue galaxies. We can think about those having a lot of stars, forming stars, John, a lot of radiation, where the galaxies that are red are, star, are galaxies that are 
have more dust, and this is what we're seeing those enshrouded galaxies. And we observe this with uh, four instruments on top of the James Webb, and we use the spectra. The spectra of that is basically just imagine the rainbow that you see outside every time it rains. Well, we're looking at the rainbow of this galaxy, how the light separate into all these colors, right? And when we do that, we find things like this. Well, we use the near spec, we separated the light of this galaxy and we identify common elements, right? Remember the beauty about science, right? Is that we study here hydrogen, helium, all these elements. But those elements behave exactly the same way here on Earth that in this distant galaxy, right? So we know the properties of those elements here. We can identify those properties back on those galaxies and we can see how far these galaxies are away from us, right? So thanks to the spectra, we were able to identify in this picture galaxies that are only a, a billion years when the universe was formed, right? So these are some of the earliest galaxies that we can find. We see now that the James Webb already have a record of some of the oldest galaxies seeing in the universe, right? So this is amazing, just combining uh, the images and the spectra, right? Looking at the rainbow of these galaxies. This is the Alvin Galloway Show on KRDP, and we'll be back. This announcement on KRDP is brought to you by the Public Information Committee of Alcoholics Anonymous, providing a 12-step program to those recovering from alcoholism. More information at 480-834-9033 or AA Mesa az.org that number again is 480-834-9033 or online at aa mesa m-e-s-a az.org be the best of whatever you are Full of hope, so beautiful Love yourself, go be free Know your worth, you see If you can be a sun, then be a star Be the best of whatever you Darkest night, you find strength when the moment comes. If you strive to do it right, just work hard and you'll find. If you can be a sun, then be a star. Be the best of whatever you are. No matter what you choose to be You may think that you ain't a 
the Alvin Galloway Show and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. Our third panelist, Nicole Arulanantham, she's a Giacconi postdoctoral fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute and she studies planets. <laughs> uh, so I'm really excited to tell you all a little bit about what I study here at the Space, at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Uh, so my main area of research is studying the formation of stars and planets in orbit around those stars. So I wanted to show you an artist's impression of what this environment might look like. Now we have really beautiful images of uh, different specific components of these systems, but I hope by the end of the presentation you'll see why it's hard to look at all of these things at once. Uh, so we have this really nice artist's impression that was made by scientists at the European Southern Observatory. And at the center of this image here, we have this ball that represents our very young, bright star. And this big ring, this brown ring of stuff is what we call a protoplanetary disk. And this protoplanetary disk includes gas and dust and all of the constituents that will eventually be used to form planets. Uh, and if you look very closely in this image, you might see a couple of very young planets, very small planets that our artist has drawn in here. Now, when these young stars form, they form from the collapse of very large clouds in space. Uh, and something will disrupt those clouds, whether it's uh, a nearby supernova explosion, a really massive star nearby that produces a lot of radiation that can disrupt this cloud. And the cloud will go from a very big kind of stable thing to a shrinking collapsing ball. And so as the density and the temperature within this ball increase, our core of our star forms and the remaining material kind of gets funneled into this disk shape. But the star is still pulling material through the disk onto itself in order to grow its mass. 
And so this creates a very energetic, turbulent, hot environment very close to the star. And this produces a ton of light at ultraviolet wavelengths. And so our eyes aren't really able to see light at ultraviolet wavelengths. But thankfully, we have some really wonderful instruments on board the Hubble Space Telescope that are able to collect this light. And so my collaborators and I look at the light from these young stars with the Hubble Space Telescope. And we try to understand a few different processes associated with how stars and planets form. So first, we can use this ultraviolet light to estimate how much mass is being pulled onto the central stars from the disks themselves. And so this tells us how quickly the stars are growing uh, by giving us an estimate of how much stuff is being pulled onto the star every year. We can also use this light from the Hubble Space Telescope that we observe with the Hubble Space Telescope to determine how much this ultraviolet radiation is interacting with the material in the protoplanetary disk. So we can get a sense of how the energy from this light goes into the molecules in the disk. And it actually can heat the molecules up so much that they have enough energy to escape the gravitational influence of the star. And so this is very interesting, right? Because the stars themselves are controlling how long the planet forming material stays in these protoplanetary disks. The stars themselves are removing the material by either pulling it from the disk onto themselves or by blowing it out of the system in those really nice outflows that we saw in the JWST images. Something that I'm really interested in studying is how this ultraviolet light influences chemistry in this planet forming material. So the light is, uh, again, very energetic. And this means that it's able to, first of all, pull gas off of dust and ice uh, grains. And so it can essentially turn some of the solid planet forming material back into the gas phase. It can also strongly influence formation of molecules in the gas that will eventually form planets. So for example, species like methane and ammonia are very sensitive to the amount of ultraviolet light coming from the young stars and reaching the gas. Now, once this gas is actually incorporated into the atmosphere of a young planet, there's a lot more chemistry that happens before we observe it as a fully formed exoplanet. Uh, but it's really important to understand the initial conditions that are present in these protoplanetary disks because that tells us the initial conditions of the planets and we can trace their evolutionary history from there. And so when we look at these protoplanetary disks at submillimeter wavelengths, we can see these rings of gas and dust, and they're, they're really beautiful, beautiful images. Uh, now it's really hard to actually see the little planets that are forming in here, just because there's so much stuff in the disk and the planets are very embedded, but we can see the signatures of the planets. For example, we might see a gap in the dust in the protoplanetary disk that might tell us that a planet is there. We might see very big spiral arms similar to the things we see in galaxies that are driven by planets that kind of produce a wake as they orbit around the stars. 
And we can also detect all kinds of different species of molecular gas. And so this tells us about the composition of stuff available for planets that are forming very far from the star. So we have Hubble to tell us about what's going on very close to the star with all the very hot material. We have submillimeter detectors to tell us about what's going on very far from the star. But what about this middle region? Now, this is where the James Webb, teles the James Webb Space Telescope comes in. Uh, JWST has infrared detectors on board, and these detectors are able to pick up light from very warm material in these protoplanetary disks. So that's slightly closer to the star than the cold frozen stuff, but not quite so close that it would be destroyed by the really strong radiation from the central star here. Something that I'm really excited to see with JWST is infrared light from molecular gas in these disks. So we will be able to detect uh, light that's produced by molecules like water, for example, which will be incredibly exciting. Uh, and there are some scientists who have really interesting observing programs designed to trace how water gets delivered from the very outer regions of these protoplanetary disks to the very inner regions where Earth-like planets might be in orbit. We'll also be able to see molecules like hydrogen cyanide, uh, which is an important carrier of hydrogen, carbon, and nitrogen, uh, which we know have been essential to forming life on Earth. And we'll also be able to detect a whole bunch of molecules that we never dreamed would be possible with this telescope, just because it has been working so beautifully uh, that we're gonna have lots of fun surprises to untangle in the data. Another thing that I'm really excited to see in the JWST data uh, is infrared light from very warm dust close to the stars. Uh, and we'll be able to look at dust features in particular that are coming from a type of dust grain called silicates. And this will tell us about the composition of that dust. And we'll be able to also explore the size of these dust grains. And the reason we care about the sizes of these dust grains is that uh, we want those grains to grow bigger so that they can eventually collide with each other and form planetesimals. Uh, and this is how we get larger and larger planetary bodies. So we want to see the solids in the disk growing and we'll be able to explore this with infrared emission from these silicate dust grains. And the last thing I'm really excited to see from protoplanetary disks with, the, with uh, JWST is actually absorption from the ices in this very cold region. So something that's really nice is that these ices will actually be backlit by light from the central stars, as well as stars that are unassociated with this planet forming environment. And the ices will absorb that infrared light, showing us exactly how much ice is there to remove light from the background source. Uh, and some of the ICE results are actually going to be released to the public in the coming weeks, I think, potentially as soon as next week. So stay tuned for that. Um, so we have all of these really nice instruments that can, can, that can collect ultraviolet, infrared, and submillimeter light. Uh, but we still have a lot of unanswered questions in star and planet formation. And so uh, scientists across the country are working on technology for the future generations of space telescopes. Uh, which will be able to observe these protoplanetary disks at far infrared wavelengths, which will help measure uh, the masses or the total amount of stuff here available to form planets. 
And we also hope to have a really, really large combined ultraviolet optical and infrared telescope uh, at some point in the coming decades, which will let us simultaneously observe the light from these young stars and the gas in their protoplanetary disks. What about intelligent life in the universe? All this knowledge that we have gathered, does, does it lead to us having a conclusion about that? No. No, no I, I don't think so. Maybe there's a life, of course, uh, I'm pretty sure there's life somewhere, bacteria or uh, simple, at least simple kind of life in the universe because there, there's billions of galaxies and billions, uh, billions of uh, planets and stars and so on. So I think it's very unlikely that we are the unique planet with life. But when it comes to intelligent life, I, I think we need this uh, more complicated. I mean, it's, it's it. Um, it takes more than what we have now with the telescopes to find out if there is intelligent life um, also. Okay. Thank, thank you, Alex. Uh, Marcio, so do we know where we come from? We're looking into the past billions of years. Well, that's the question we're trying to answer, right? So, uh, and that's part when we look at exoplanets or planets inside our solar system, we're looking at these a fundamental building blocks of life, right? And trying to identify things that look or resemble the life as we know here on Earth. I was writing on the chat, we have, uh, what are the conditions? For instance, we know we're looking for uh, water in liquid form, right? So we know for us, water is very important. Oxygen as well. So James Webb could detect potentially oxygen in the atmosphere of exoplanets. And so there are a few things that we can do, but but James Webb is not a telescope designed to look for intelligence life, right? We're designed to answer these big questions, whether or not, what are the fundamental blocks of life? And if you can detect that. Nicole, anything to add? I think, you know, this has been a really great summary. The thing that we can detect in the data from Hubble and Webb and what we're hoping to be able to characterize with Webb especially, um, are the abundances of different molecules in the atmospheres of exoplanets. Uh, and a goal behind this is to be able to detect anything that seems weird that can maybe be attributed to life. Now, whether that life is intelligent, we don't know, uh, but astrobiologists are currently making predictions for what molecules might be signatures of life having formed on another planet. Uh, and the work that exoplanet scientists are going to do with JWST over the next 20 years or so will really nail down what a normal atmosphere looks like so that we can hopefully detect any deviations from that with instrumentation in the future. You have been listening to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. We thank Ethnic Media Services that continues to bring us pertinent information that affects our lives every day. This is the Alvin Galloway Show. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and also to check out our podcast. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. Remember, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. We'll see you next week. Be blessed.
Herbie Hancock, he who lives in fear. Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small. We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.